We were created, the book of Genesis says, in the image of God, the imago Dei, and in that image of God, we, just like him, are called to be set apart. We were created to be different. And so this idea of holiness shouldn't bring a great amount of fear, but actually a great amount of courage that this is who I am. In fact, when we think about who we are, it makes me think about a story. It's an ancient story. It's a good 2,000 plus years old of a rabbi in the first century AD named Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was walking home one day after studying the Hebrew scriptures, and he's walking, and he's, and he's in, deep in thought. He's, he's thinking about everything that he has been taught and learning, and he was deep in meditation, so captivated by the text and his thoughts. He was supposed to turn left to head home towards Capernaum, and instead he ended up going right. And before he realized it, he was wandering away. I don't know if you've done that before. You've ever driven on 1604, and you're driving, and you make your exit, and you get home, and you're going, I don't even remember getting here is that just me is that just Houstonians I don't know you're like how did I get here it's just that muscle memory got you there but he went the wrong way because he was so involved in the word of God next thing he knows hears this booming voice because he found himself right at the gate of a Roman fortress and this booming voice of a Roman guard said who are you and why are you here And he was confused because he was still in deep thought. And he looked up and he said, what? And the story goes, the Roman guard boomed again. Who are you? And why are you here? And Rabbi Kiva got to himself and was startled and realized where he was. And he was in danger. And and this guy asking him, he had great fear come over him. But he looked up to him and he said this, How much do you get paid to ask me this question? And the Roman guard yelled down two drachmas per week, and he said, I will pay you twice as much if you stand by my door and yell those same questions every morning to me. Who are you, and why are you here? Who are you, and why are you here? When we talk about the idea of being set apart or holy, this is an identity statement. The identity of who God is, holy, set apart, altogether different, unique from any other God, any other creature. He is the created one. And when he created all of life and creation, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates man He rests, he says, it's very good, and he created man altogether different. In fact, he breathed life into man, and he said, you are in my image. You are set apart as well. And see, we know in the garden, we lost that set apartness. We became unholy, and yet that's not how we were originally created. The idea of who are you, and where are you going? Where did you come from? Why are you here is the age-old question I think we all have to answer. And if we don't answer that well, a lot of times it's because we don't really know our God well. In fact, Oscar Wilde, an author, says this, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives a mimicry. Their passions a quotation. Most people don't know 
the answer to that question, which is why Rabbi Akiva said, I need someone to ask me that all the time because I find myself drifting away from who I am and why I'm here. What is your purpose in life? These are the ultimate questions we have to ask. John Calvin, famous theologian and pastor, says this, there's no deep knowing of God without deep knowing of self and no deep knowing of self without deep knowing of God. In other words, the more you get to know God, the more you should understand yourself being made and fashioned in the Imago Day. The more you can answer the question of who God is, the more you should understand who he's created you to be and why you're here. This is what propels us instead of repels us into being set apart, into holiness. And not only that, then the more you understand yourself and you made in the image of God, the more you can understand God for who he is. Today we're going to be in passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You can get your Bibles ready or it will be up here for your convenience. Light up your phone, however you do it. There is no judgment here, but we love the word of God. I'm going to give you kind of a takeaway for today's message, and it's this. Holiness is something God calls you into, you fall into, then you walk into. You're called, you fall, and then you walk. In 2 Samuel, just to let you guys know, how many of you are familiar with David? A lot of people like David. They know the story of David and Goliath. If you know, David was a shepherd boy. He was anointed as king to replace Saul because Saul was disobedient to God. God used the prophet Samuel to anoint him as a shepherd boy because he was a, a man after God's heart. This was a man's man. And not a man's man in our culture today where we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and those things. We've got this, this man's man who was not only a poet, a writer, a guitar player. I mean, he played the harp, but I will say guitar. But also, also, he was not only sensitive like that, but this is also a man who watched after the sheep and got down and dirty to take care of them. And then if a lion approached, it said he didn't run away like a hireling, but he loved his sheep so much, he actually would pursue the lion. There's a story where it says he grabs it by his mane and kills it. Guys, this is a man. This is a depiction of what Jesus is, the lion and the lamb. Not just the sensitive savior, but also a holy, powerful warrior. And this is the depiction of David. This David, though, was not in the lineage of King Saul. So typically, we know in kingdoms, the king's son would become the next king and so on and so forth. The bloodline would reign in Israel. Saul became the first king, but David got anointed because Saul disobeyed God. David kills Goliath and then ends up in the armies, ends up marrying one of Saul's daughters, so ends up in the family, but he's still not a part of the bloodline. He actually becomes best friends with Saul's son, the heir to the throne, the prince of Israel, Jonathan. Jonathan and David are best friends. Jonathan ends up having to warn David that Saul's going to kill him because Saul became jealous of David. Like many of us do, if anybody has, has started to rise up and do better in your job or your position and you, you find yourself having to kind of be territorial, this was Saul. 
And instead of trusting in the Lord and what he's going to do, David had to run. And Jonathan and Saul made a covenant together to say, my people are your people. Whatever happens, Jonathan was so humble to say, I see the anointing on you that you're going to be king one day, but you've got to run because my dad's trying to kill you. David fled for some 13 plus years. Didn't become king till about 30 years old. Had an opportunity to usurp the throne and kill Saul and didn't do it. You talk about a humble guy. David ends up king. Why? Because Saul and his son Jonathan end up dying on the battlefield together. And then David had that opportunity to come in, but he allowed the Lord to do it. As David became king, one of his first edicts to do in 2 Samuel chapter 9 says this, verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul, to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that we get to hear from you today. Let your word be true and everything else be a lie. Illuminate our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. What's interesting about these passages, and one of my favorite stories in all the Old Testament, is you have David, who was king at the time, and the first thing he decides to do isn't just build his own kingdom or, or make, make his own way, but he says, I remember I made a covenant with Jonathan, who was the prince, who was the heir to the throne, to bless him. Now, if, if, you, if you don't understand, we, we kind of would get this in our vernacular, in our culture. At that time, if you became a king, Typically, if it wasn't in the lineage or the bloodline, you would want to kill all of the bloodline of the previous king. 
Why? Because you would not want their sons to rise up and destroy you. This is similar to, uh, you know, say, San Antonio Spurs, if Greg Popovich decided to leave, okay? What would happen is they bring a new coach in, and typically all the rest of the staff gets fired. Why? Because he had a certain system and a certain way to do things, so you would want to bring in all new people, Okay, we see this in every arena. We see it with the presidential campaign and the new faculty. You see this, but especially when it had to do with the kingdom. So typically you would kill the, the, the lineage, the rest of the people, and yet David said, no, I'm not going to do that. Even though Saul tried to kill me, I want to show kindness. And he, kept, he uses this word several times. Who can I show kindness to in the house of Saul? I love this word. I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew today. The word kindness here is chesed. Okay, you got to a little bit. Okay, chesed. Say that to someone, chesed. Okay, this word kindness is the same word we get grace. We know grace is unmerited favor. He says, who can I show chesed to? One thing I love about the Hebrew language is each word has some kind of imagery behind it. And the imagery of chesed or grace is rain. We say amazing grace, like rain. Why is it rain? Because in an agricultural community, they are dependent upon the water for their crops. If their crops don't grow, if they don't have water, they can't always make water the same way we do. But even today, my, my father-in-law has cattle and farm, and if it's not raining, he struggles in Oklahoma. And that rain is nothing you can produce or do. It is only by grace that it falls. This is the idea of God's grace. Nothing you earn, nothing you even deserve, God just does it. Something outside of you. And so David says, I want to show the same chesed that was given to me, the grace of God that put me on the throne, that I didn't do it myself. I want to give that same grace in covenant language to my best friend's heir. Is there anyone left? And he finds out this guy named Mephibosheth. Holiness, being set apart for something special, is what God has done for all of us. This is why I love this story, because I think all of us are Mephibosheth. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're Mephibosheth. Next one, you're Mephibosheth. It's hard to say. It sounds like you're speaking in tongues. You're welcome. I just, you just got baptized. We are all Mephibosheth. Why? Mephibosheth. The grace of God went from zero to hero, went from nothing to in the presence of the king. Why is this important? He was set apart, but not because of who he was, but because of the grace of the king. But who was Mephibosheth? We found out at the end of this that he was crippled in his feet. But the scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 4 how this happened. 2 Samuel 4, 4 says this, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old. Here's his story. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, what was the news? They were killed. He lost his, his grandfather and his father on the same day at five years old. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. What a sad story. Not his own accord, five years old, because found out 
King David and his son are dead. They're thinking, whoever's going to be king next is going to come kill us. The nurse picks him up, runs out, trips, falls. He is lame for the rest of his life. What's interesting about this name, Mephibosheth, the names are very important in Scripture. Mephibosheth means this, son of shame. You're like, well, Pastor Chris, you just say we're all Mephibosheth. We are. Have you ever experienced feelings of shame? You know, guilt says you did something bad, and that's not all bad because we need a sense of guilt for conviction to change so we don't grow hard in our hearts. But see, guilt says you did something bad. Shame says you are bad. It's your identity. It's who you are. Therefore, it's where you're going. Shame says you're not enough because your house is not clean. Any parents in here? Just me? Okay. Your kids are not perfect. You've been fired recently or had a bad year in review or you are full of shame because you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. If people saw the real you, they would hate you. Shame says you aren't skinny enough, buff enough, tall enough. I feel that. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I have a girl who looks good and I call her. You're not tall enough. You're not smart enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not buff enough. It always tells the story. Shame always tells the story of not enough. You're not enough. But here's the problem. You can never embrace your identity, your holiness, your set-apartness in the image of God if you believe you are shameful. You're a son of shame. It's interesting because the Bible is replete with different people where God gives one name and he gives a different name, like Jacob to Israel, one who is a deceiver and an ankle grabber, Jacob, to one who wrestles with God. Or from Saul to Paul, or you've got Simon, if you watch The Chosen, to Peter, right? The change of name because it's a new identity. It's who you are now. What's interesting, though, is the Bible has another name for Mephibosheth. I don't know if you know this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34, it actually gives a different name for the son of Jonathan. It says this. And the son of Jonathan was Marib Baal. And Marib Baal was the father of Micah. Marib Baal means opponent of Baal or Baal. We say Baal here in Texas. Baal. The prophets of Baal. Okay. It's Baal. Okay. Uh, this idea, his name was an opponent of Baal. Baal was considered the God of all creation. Not Yahweh, not Israel God, but everybody else's God. Baal was the, was the, the husband to the people, the, the husband of all creation. And this name was used interchangeably for a lot of things. But listen, here, here, here's what I think. I think Jonathan had this son, and he looks at him, and he doesn't call him son of shame, Mephibosheth. When he first has a son, he looks at him, he's going, you're going to be heir to the kingdom of God. I'm going to be king, then one day you're going to be king, and you're my first son, and this is going to be beautiful. I name you Marie Baal. You are going to be the opponent of Baal, the opponent of all other nations and their God, because you are for Yahweh. 
You're going to change the world. You look at your, your firstborn. You're going to change the world, son. You're going to be everything. When he dies and his grandfather dies in battle and he loses his inheritance as the next king, your name at five years old is no longer opponent but son of shame. You must have done something bad. Your family must have done something bad to put you in the place that you are. Can you imagine him living his whole life being called the son of shame? Every time he heard his name, they had to pick him up and take him to dinner and take care of him. He just felt shameful. This is why when he approached David, he's afraid and said he gave homage to David. He said, who am I? I'm a dead dog. He's been told who he was. And thus where he was going. He did not feel a sense of I'm set apart. I'm special. I have a holy mission because I am under a holy God. No, I'm full of shame. And I think this is where we can all live. And if we don't understand the true nature of what God has done for us, we'll never step into the identity of holiness. And we'll have a hard time continuing to see God. Or we'll see this just such a huge separation. There is a separation between us and God because he is creator and we are creation. But he loves us so much that he draws us in to come close to be set apart with him. This is the God we serve. I see these two different names and I wonder how much we struggle with who we are and where we're going because we have identified the wrong name. I don't have the right parents. I don't have the right thing. We, all of us have some kind of trauma in our past or something that's held us back from really believing we can step into the things of God, step into the kingdom of God, step into some of us today, the forgiveness of God, the chesed, the grace of God. And here's the takeaway for why this is important. The grace of God and what King David ended up doing to pull the son of shame and make him something he was not, something he lost. To the point, he went from nothing and lowly to a son of shame to now sitting at the king's table with the king every day. And that reminder when he heard the dinner bell and people would bring him in and he got to sit with the king as one of his sons. He was restored into who he was, who he was called to be. I think his identity started to change and started to shape Because he saw himself now set apart, and not in a haughty, conceited way, but in a right, confident style. Here's the takeaway. I said earlier, you're called into holiness. As as David called him there, as as Jonathan called him as a young boy, you are set apart, you are different, you are going to be opponent of Baal. But see, then he falls into it. And not just falls because he's crippled, but he falls because of the grace of God. Who can I show kindness to in the house of Saul? And all of us, listen, have fallen into the grace of God. None of us deserve it. Ben Chapman, maybe, but the rest of us, none of us deserve the grace of God. None of us. And yet we fall into it. And it causes us to have a different identity to help us now walk it out. Walk out the identity and the holiness that God has called us to. So here's the deal. See, you need to understand your identity precedes your ability. Your identity precedes your ability. 
See, if you get it backwards, you're still thinking works righteousness. I got to do everything right. I got to live holy. I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing that. And God says, no, 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 no. See, now you're trying to do the work of Jesus. Jesus already did it. He has now identified you in him, with him. And so now when you start to say, I am a king's kid. I am at the throne with God. Not God. Don't hear me wrong. He is God. But he has now set me apart with him to be walking with him. In fact, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you everywhere you go. And if that becomes your identity, it starts to be easy now to walk in the ability that he's given you. But if you start with ability, you'll never get to identity. Because you'll either do really good, and you'll feel really good, and then you start looking at all these people, man, why are you still struggling? This is easy. Until you get to the point where you fall, and you're either really confident and overly uh, religious, or you're always, I'm just no good, I'll never be able to do it, I can't do it. But see, you've lost your identity either way. You've lost it in your over-understanding of how bad you are, or your under-understanding of how good God is. Your identity precedes your ability. When I know who God is, I know who I am, and I know whose I am, I now walk in the ability that he's called me. I don't know about you, but if you've ever had that sense of awe and worship and you've just experienced the grace of God, it's easy to now walk with God because you wake up in the morning and the birds are they're chirping and you're just like, oh, you're in the word of God and everything's great. And it's like, oh, this is, this is like the wind at my back. I'm walking in the spirit of God. I'm walking in a sense of holiness, but it's not my holiness. It's his. And we're walking together in this garden again. And then the moment we sin, we all of a sudden think, oh, no, I've got to redo everything. And the way back isn't to just make yourself better again. That's like brushing your teeth before you go to the dentist. It ain't helping. You're like, well, I don't want him to have my bad breath. Well, he's got a mask on for a reason because your breath stank, right? It's not helping. All the damage is done. He's going to clean you up. Guess what? We go to the Father the same way. Some of us, we creep in church. We're like, oh, am I going to get lightning going to strike me? Because I messed up last night. Like I did something wrong. And listen, I'm not giving you a license to sin, but I am saying stepping into the faith of the identity of what Christ has bought you is actually the faith you need from the grace accepted in order to now live that holy life because your identity precedes your ability. The New Testament says a lot about this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has Come, the old man, where you were, that's not who you are. It's not where you're going. First Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what he's done. Step into it. Walk into it. Revelation 21, at the end and the culmination of all things, he says, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. God's not going to call you off to heaven. He's going to come and bring heaven to earth fully. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. 
and death shall be no more. Here's where we're going, who we are, and where we're headed. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment grace. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We long for this new country. When we know who we are and our identity, then we know where we're going, and we long for this new country, this new place. It gives us the hope that we need to endure the sufferings and the trials now when things aren't going great. Because the guarantee of who you are in Christ doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. Like we say, foundations and biblical foundations we need to storm-proof our life, not to give us a storm-free life. But it's that grace that holds us on. I think of the great Connecticut Nathan Hale, famous words for saying he only had one regret before a British captured him and killed him in 1776. He said, I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. He's like, I believe so much in this kingdom that I, I regret I'm even going to have to suffer just one time. I would suffer more. And, and, and I think it's the same with the people of God. I'm willing to suffer because I see the future hope of where I'm going, of what's great, even in suffering, just like Jesus. And how much greater than for a country, but for the kingdom of God and a new heaven and a new earth. We need that kind of fortitude to get us through some of the trials in our life. But it comes from who we are and knowing where we're going. We need that kind of faith of Nathan Hale or, or maybe, how about this, of, I say you need some Kanye confidence. We say this in my church. Kanye West is quoted by saying this, I am God's vessel, but my greatest pain in life is that I'll never be able to see myself perform live. <laughs> Talk about confidence in who you are. Now, I, I ain't saying go buy his albums, but here's what I'm saying. When you know who you are, you step into some Kanye confidence in Christ. Who he's called you to be in the plan he has for you no matter what that looks like. That confidence comes from a place of identity, but not only of who you are, but where you're going and ultimately where God wants you. Let me wrap this up. As I said, I love this story and I love David. I love the story of David. We know later David falls, just like all men do, and the greater David Christ comes and gives us the grace and lives the life we should have lived and dies the death we deserve to die in our place. So it made me think, I like this. David was humbled by God and received his crowning as a king. But see, Jesus humbled himself to God and received our rags and shame. See, David was humble enough to wait for it and get the throne. But see, Jesus came down not to get the throne. Later he'll do that, but first he took our rags and our sin and our shame on a cross. That's humility. David, as king, sent a messenger from Mephibosheth and brought him to his palace to restore him to his royal status while Jesus came to us personally 
lived among us as a poor, lowly servant, and through his death restored us to our royal status. Jesus is the greater David. David commanded others to take care of Mephibosheth's needs and land. Jesus took on our sin, shame, and weaknesses himself and dealt with them on our behalf. Jesus is the greater David. This morning, my prayer more than anything is that you recognize wherever you are, by faith in Christ, that his work is enough. Even today, we I need to be better. I need to do better. No, no, no. You're saying Jesus' work was not enough. I need to now do my part. But faith says his work is enough, and I'm going to step into a relationship with God and who he's called me to be because my identity precedes my ability. And then you start to walk it out by the grace of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, God. Thank you love us so much that you don't tell us get our act together, but you came to do the acts and the works for us so that now we can walk not for love, but from a place of love. Thank you, God. Let us be amazed by your grace. Pray for everyone here, God, that you drop spirit of grace and kindness in their heart to walk out all you've called them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.